It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. It's great to have you with me this week. This week ahead, I'm going to preview a few things on this show. We're going to have our August mailbag. So, the end of every month, the last week, the last Wednesday of every month, for almost a year now, we've had you writing questions and me doing my best to answer them. We've got a good question about should you add to your winners or your losers, and how does that relate to buying in thirds to dollar cost averaging. So, I'm looking forward to tackling that one near the end of the show. But the preview for this show is going to sound a lot more interesting than most of my other podcasts. So, also ahead this hour, what your business can learn from the military, the secret behind why the U.S. military thinks it will keep on winning, why peace isn't actually the goal in the Middle East, and a public speaking Q&A best practice. These and other observations, learnings, and tips are all part of JCOC2. I mentioned this last week when I covered the first of this two-part series. It's the Joint Civilian Orientation Conference, the experience that I had, along with about 40 other Americans, a little earlier this August, touring all five of the armed forces here in the United States of America. And I talked last week about, well, it was my top 10 of things I saw, heard, or did. That was a lot of fun. But I said also last week, I need time to process this. So, I've had that time now. I've thought more about it, and I committed last week to you to give you some reflections and learnings. And as you may have heard from my teaser at the show open, I've got a motley mix of different thoughts. And uh, these are unordered, but I hope, I hope it's a rich and fun conversation this week. Uh, and I will be moving to your mailbag questions right at the end. So, I want to start, and I'm not going to number these. I could, but then we'd probably hit about a dozen or so, and the numbers would become meaningless. So, I'm just going to talk to you, um, bounce around some of the things that we learned and saw uh, with the military, but more specifically, reflections and learnings I had, and I'm sharing them now back with you. And I want to start with the first one, which was very much in evidence throughout the week, and that was really seeing and being around, this is a beautiful phrase, servant leadership. Much is made of the phrase servant leadership. Wikipedia lets me know that it's it's an ancient philosophy. It could go back uh, Lao Tzu. We can go back um, about quick math here, 2,600 years, and find it introduced. Certainly, we see it in the Bible. Many more examples throughout history and literature. More recently, Robert Greenleaf is credited with the having founded the quote modern movement towards servant leadership. Anyway, I'm not really a student of servant leadership, but I'm a big fan of it. I love it when I see it in public companies that we're invested in. And as I've said in times past in this podcast, I think most of the great examples of leadership that I see today are in the private sector, where I see outstanding CEOs, people like Elon Musk, just saying, we need to solve this problem. Let's go do it. And they actually do it in a profitable way, which creates value for the world at large, including even shareholders. Uh, for-profit believers in some of these people like Steve Jobs and Howard Schultz of Starbucks, and the list goes on of just great leaders that I've seen. But throughout the week, people that you and I don't know, whose names don't come so trippingly to the tongue for investors, seeing and being around that kind of leadership was outstanding. I mentioned last week, at the very start of our week, General Selva, the second highest ranking military officer, told us, don't spend time with people like me this week. Spend time with the brand new people, the freshest recruits, the brightest eyes, the ones who've just started. Ask them, why are you here? 
Where did you come from? That spirit was carried throughout the week. General Votel, who is in charge of Central Command in Tampa, spending time standing outside Central Command, shaking hands with each one of us as we came in, and then giving his own PowerPoint himself in kind of an intimate theatrical setting. We couldn't even take pictures of this or record it at all. But then being there personally to answer each of our questions afterwards, very evident how alive and well servant leadership is in the U.S. military. Of course, I would love to see that in all areas of our lives, everything from the family that you might lead right through to the nation that is being led. I'd love to see that in all of our political leaders. How about in any of our political leaders? And I'm, I'm joking there a little bit, because I certainly know some wonderful politicians. Anyway, let's keep moving. Okay, second coming to mind is just how little fighting is really done by, by the military. Um, even at the special forces level, when we were with the Army Special Forces, uh, the 75th U.S. Army Rangers um, in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, it became clear to us as civilians that fighting is really a last resort, isn't it? I mean, it's a last resort. It comes after all kinds of efforts are made every day by our military abroad to try to improve other people's lives so that fighting isn't even necessary. You know, the Marines talk about three things that Marines do on the ground. The first is fight insurgents. Um, they are warriors, after all. But the second is feed the needy. And they do a ton of that. And the third is just build up partner forces. Uh, so those two latter things, they don't often come to mind when we think about soldiers. But even among the special forces, um, they spend a lot of time. One of the groups that we talked with was the PSYOP group, Psychological Operations, uh, where they say, yeah, we basically, our goal is to get in and partner with local people and get to know them and build relationships. Um, in fact, I love this line. They said, you know, really, in most of the areas in the world in which we deal, the truth is really our most effective, our deadliest weapon. And that's especially true when we think about countries where the truth really is not at all equally distributed, or even most people are aware of it. For example, North Korea, which I'll be mentioning shortly. North Korea is a country where if you look at a graph of the percentage of people in North Korea using the internet, it's pretty much a flat line at zero. So, it's these kinds of environments where really, if we can get the truth in there, and I realize some people will be cynical about whether the U.S. military really has the truth or not, and that's always an open question, but from what I saw and the people I met, I feel really good that the truth for all of us, not just Americans, but for all of us in the educated, progressive, modern world that is trading with each other and creating untold amounts of value as technology keeps accelerating, the truth is an outstanding asset. And so it's really worth remembering that most of the people who are serving in the military every day are just out pretty much helping the world. A third insight this was something that was consistent throughout the week, and that is the description from the top levels in terms of what are the greatest threats to the United States of America. So, quick quiz for you. I got four countries and a fifth thing. You can ask yourself in your own mind, what would the U.S. military deem to be the four countries in ranked order that represent the greatest threats to our safety and stability? I'm not really going to editorialize on each of these. I'll just give you the list. The first one starts with an R. It's Russia. Russia is number one. Number two is China. Number three is Iran. And number four is North Korea, a country that is not much bigger than the U.S. state of Mississippi. But those 
consistently from one branch of the military, from the U.S. Armed Forces to the next, they were all marching in line to the same concept, which shows that communications are effective from the Department of Defense. And generally, it's nice to know that there is consistency in communication, and we're all marching to the same beat throughout the armed forces. The fifth, which is not a country, uh, some people might use the word terrorism. I don't like that term. Um, the U.S. military doesn't use it. They use the term violent extremism. And I remember, in particular, one of the generals saying, we don't actually name who or what that is, because if we put a name on it today, let's say Al-Qaeda, that wouldn't be the same name we were using three or five years from now. It keeps changing. So, violent extremism. And I think a lot of us, especially as Americans, and I know I'm speaking to many Americans today, uh, we do have a lot of international listeners as well for Rule Breaker Investing, but for us in America, maybe your country too, I think we're rather preoccupied with violent extremism. We worry about that a lot. We, when something goes wrong, the first question is, was that a terrorist thing? Was that somebody? Um, but the truth is, especially from the military standpoint, those are generally pretty under-resourced operations. They're not impressive, most of them. They don't really have that much in terms of forces or technology or really the ability to work together. So, it's really these larger countries that don't always purpose freedom or seem to act in ways that you and I would say, well, that's a good citizen. Um, those are the things that the U.S. military spends most time thinking about. So, that was a little bit of a surprise to me. All right, next one up. I mentioned this earlier, that the goal in the Middle East is not, is not peace. And that came from General Votel, who's in charge of Central Command. And he said, you know, we don't really use that word. That's not in our lifetimes. That's probably not achievable. Um, it's a little bit Pollyanna-ish, I might say, not General Votel. He said the, the phrase that we use is stability and cooperation. That's really what we're aiming for in the Middle East. It's the most realistic thing we can achieve, and it's a better way sometimes of thinking about what we want from that area of the world than the concept of so-called peace. Next one, I've got a couple terms I want to define that I learned about last week, one of which is because this is the military, after all, an acronym. I'll cover that second. The first one is a term near and dear to us here for Rule Breakers and Rule Breaker Investing, and us, anybody who's an investor, lots of us here at The Motley Fool. And that's the word risk. You know, risk, in, in the military sense, is fundamentally different from how you and I use the word when we think about, well, just everything from investing to life. Because I think, when I think about investing, I like to take risk. Risk is a good thing. Um, I like that there's uncertainty about whether Netflix will ever, back in the day, be bigger than Blockbuster, or whether Google, back in the day, will even ever make money as just a free search engine. Those kind of early questions, and we see questions still like that today for a lot of the companies that we're looking at going forward. So, I like the risk that's inherent there, where it might not work out, our conception of whether Chipotle may or may not pull itself out of its operational and public relations snafus of the last year. Those are really interesting. And when I believe, and I go in and I put my money down, you and I become investors in those companies, we're taking risk, and risk often equates with reward. So, I can say more about risk. We've talked about it before here. I know we'll talk about it in future. but. From a military standpoint, this is this was really interesting to me. The concept of risk just fundamentally different because, after all, if you come from the military and your goal is to protect you and me, your citizens, your homeland, if you take a risk and fail, it really, really hurts. Again, 
you and I, as investors, the worst we can ever do is lose 100% of our money. Well, that's if we didn't do something silly like borrow money beyond that, take crazy risks, leverage, and then lose it all. Really, we can't lose much more than 100% of whatever that investment is. And if you're a capital F foolish investor, then you probably have, I hope, at least 15 plus different stocks and or funds. You're diversified. I hope not over-diversified, but you're diversified. You can afford to lose. When you're operating at a national level and you work in the military, you really can't afford to lose. And so, that concept of risk, much more about protecting downside and ensuring the ultimate downside never happens than any kind of real sense of upside to risk. In fact, the way that I heard the Marines, I think it was the Marines, talk about how they train enlisted people, they're looking for, quote, the ability to anticipate, communicate, and mitigate risk. End quote. The ability to anticipate it, to communicate it, share it out, and then to reduce it, mitigate it as much as possible. So, anytime I heard risk that week, I realized this is a fundamentally different concept than the one that I think about the other 51 weeks of the year. And then one other term I want to define, and that's just uh, this military acronym AOR, and that's for area of responsibility. And this is a Pretty simple concept. You you hear people use acronyms all the time. Occasionally, we as civilians would say, um, "Let me stop you there. Could you just say what AOR means? Because you just used it." And that was a frequent interchange that I and my fellow JCOC civilians had with military at all levels, just asking them to stop for a second and explain the acronym they just laid out in front of us. But area of responsibility. So this is what you'd think it is. It might be a geographical area where somebody, a general or a battalion, has a responsibility, or it might be an operational kind of responsibility, a more philosophical level, an abstract area of responsibility. I'm mentioning this one because I think it's kind of great. I saw the military make sure that any area of responsibility was owned, that it was clear who had ownership of that responsibility in that area. And when I think about business, this is something I think we as business people can learn from the military as I mentioned earlier in the teaser to the show. I think that you should be asking yourself your organization for profit, not for profit, are all the areas of responsibility are those owned? Do you have clarity within your organization in terms of, yeah, who's basically on task for making sure that happens or for making sure nothing bad happens and Maybe it's that I grew up in an internet company when our 23rd year and still building the plane as we fly, but I think we at The Motley Fool sometimes, and even today, no doubt, have blind spots where we're not quite, we don't realize that that should have been an AOR. And so we need to designate the AOR. Maybe I'm speaking to you in your own organization. Do you know your AORs and do you know who owns them? It's very impressive to see it at the military level. Next one up, and speaking of things we can learn as businesses from the military. I had a really interesting answer from General Votel. Again, he's the head of Central Command, so he's overseeing the 20 countries, that theater of operations that are in the Middle East. And I asked him at one point, in so many words, what's sort of a disruptive rule breakery thought that you have in terms of ways that you could improve the military? Or your life. I don't know your life at all. I said I don't know your context, but as a rule breaker myself, I'm always look, looking to go against the conventional wisdom and try to figure out how can we do something better, special, different than we did before. And he said, and again, I think this applies to business. He said, um, we have a problem organizing to solve 
problems. We tend, he says, to organize geographically. And he doesn't just mean the military, although it does divide up the world into different geographical theaters or bases of operation, but he said with the government as well. The government and the military have a hard time solving some of these really thorny problems that have persisted, like how about the conflict between Israel and the Arab world. Um, and he said it's, it's further complicated because you have a lot of different hands in the pot here. You've got an ambassador to the country. So, from a diplomatic level, you have somebody who's trying to be a solution. Um, you have regionally focused entities. Some of them are NGOs, non-government organizations that are tasked or have tasked themselves with aiding and abetting um, disenfranchised people or feeding the world. So, you have regionally focused entities. You also have certainly um, the same type of military operations. Uh, you have intelligence in place where you're trying to gather and understand um, what's happening there. And then you also have, of course, the U.S. military in our case. So you have a lot of different constituencies, Congress as well, which oversees the military. And he said, and, and I like this point, he said it's really hard to work interoperably together. And so he said, you know, ideally, if we could, we should, he said, organize to solve the problem rather than organize geographically or by turf. And isn't that a great lesson for businesses as well? Some of the best businesses haven't said, um, we're going to fix this in this state or this country or in this industry. They just think about you and me as consumers and how can they make our lives better. Often it's just a question of trying to solve problems. A lot of our tech group here at The Motley Fool that's the question they ask as they do tech build-outs and think about how to improve our website. Specifically, they'll ask us, before we make suggestions of a new product or features, what problem are you trying to solve? And I think the more that we, especially at a global level, can do that, the more effective channeling here, General Votel, the more effective we can be. So, a thought. The next one I have for you, a horse of a completely different color. This was an insight. As it turns out, aboard the USS George Washington aircraft carrier, I learned that the anchor is not really an anchor. So, if you ever tour an aircraft carrier, you'll go, you maybe get to go to the forecastle or the forecastle in the um, naval parlance, the abbreviated version of the word that has been used by sailors for a few centuries. You go to the forecastle and you'll see the anchor. And in the case of an aircraft carrier, you'll see the huge, huge links. Um, you know, the size of your torso, each of the links weighing well more than your torso, I hope, because they each weigh about 250 pounds. And so, when you really think about it, when you think about that chain being about a thousand feet long in the case of an aircraft carrier, you'll realize that the real anchor is the chain links itself. The little thing on the end doesn't hold down an aircraft carrier as well. So, the anchor isn't an anchor. It's the chain. Just kind of an interesting fun fact. Speaking of fun facts, I am a fan of the Amazon Echo. I do speak to Alexa on a daily basis. For anybody who has the Amazon Echo, I recommend it. And one of the fun things I discovered recently you can do with the Amazon Echo is you can say, Alexa, give me an interesting fact. And I do that a couple times a day. And Alexa comes up with things like the one I just told you. Now, the anchor point was for my own experience. But um, that's an interesting fact, and there are a lot more that we can learn if you're an Amazon Echo user. All right, next one up. I mentioned 
earlier that I was going to tell you the secret behind why the U.S. military thinks it will keep on winning, and you've waited to the 20th minute or so of this podcast, so you're entitled now to know the answer to this secret. This is through my own observation, but it was reinforced at a few points by people who are training the military. And here is, as I see it, the U.S. Department of Defense's great advantage, and I think not to speak for it, but I think that they would recognize this. And that is that today in the United States of America, we are an all volunteer force. So everybody who's serving in any of the five U.S. armed forces has chosen to do so. And we are regularly confronting threats in which that is completely not the case. Of course, we've heard of some horrible cases where people have in the worst cases, bombs strapped to their bodies, and they're not even part of whatever is about to blow them up. But I'm thinking more in terms of the authoritarian regimes in which people there are not choosing to be there. And if you think about not just the decision to choose or not to be recruited by your military, but you actually think about how people are commanded, there's a really fundamentally different vibe happening in the U.S. as I saw it than I think many of the enemies in the world at large. And that is, for the most part, the U.S. military is tr- is teaching autonomy to its leaders. They want you to be, whether you're char- in charge of a, a large or small force, they want you to be pretty able to act on your own without getting orders from somebody higher up. Of course, there are a ton of orders, and the U.S. military is very process-driven. But fundamentally, they're teaching leaders, especially just the very small units, to operate as autonomously as possible. And I'm going to throw in another word there, which I heard uh, last week, and that is creatively as possible as well. Encouraging creativity for on-the-ground forces. That's If that's well done and well achieved, I think it generally has been in the U.S., in the military, that is very powerful relative to any enemies or threats in which that is completely not the case. And I think I'm happy to say that for some of our biggest threats identified earlier in this podcast, that is not the case. They do not have that kind of autonomy or creativity being taught or grown or expected of people serving in the military. So, I I see that as a, a secret, and it's one of those that we're probably even happy to allow to get out, because like a lot of great secrets, you can hear it even if you're a competitor, but it's very hard in many cases to do it unless you fundamentally restructure your culture or your operations, and I don't think that's happening anytime soon. Okay, just a few more, and then we're going to get to our mailbag and a couple of your financial questions. I mentioned earlier that I wanted to give you a public speaking Q&A best practice. I saw this happen a few times, um, and I think in particular of Lieutenant Colonel Shusko, who I mentioned last week, who teaches the Marines martial arts. But I also saw it in General Tovo, who is in charge of the United States of America Special Operations Command. Both of them would do this every time they answered a question. They would say, did that answer your question? Great. And the next person would ask, did that answer your question? Good. Every single time asking at the end of a Q&A, did that answer your question, giving the person who had asked the question an opportunity to say, no, not quite. Um, imagine if this ever happened on television, when um, everything from politicians to CEOs are being asked questions on a regular basis, they're regularly not answering the question. Of course, they would therefore not, at the end of their answer, say, did that answer your question? Imagine what a better world it would be from a public discourse standpoint if everybody did what I saw the military leaders regularly do, which is at the end of every A to every Q to ask simply, did that work for you? Did that do it? 
awesome. And I'm going to close it out with just a few insights that I saw from hearing and learning from how special forces are trained in the United States of America. First thing I want to say about it is it's a very selective process. I think everybody knows that. A, a tiny percentage of people who actually apply to be a U.S. Army Ranger ever get to be. There is, as you'd expect, the physical requirements and demands. At a minimum, you have to be able to do things like 59 sit-ups, 49 push-ups, then you have to run a few miles in a short time, and then finish it all out with some pull-ups. So, yes, there are those physical requirements, but what was really evident to me is how those almost take a back seat, even in the U.S. Special Forces, to intellectual and character, almost moral characteristics, which they're constantly looking for. In fact, they said their selection process has only slightly changed since 1989. Think about how many other things in the world have changed, including all the technology and equipment that the military uses since 1989, and yet the actual process for selection is still mostly the same. Here are a few of the things that they'll do. Um, They'll have you start running, and they won't tell you for how long you're running. You just have to run. They just say, run, and you run. So, there's ambiguity in terms of what's going to be asked of you. And as you probably expect, they'll stress you out. They'll frequently have you do a lot more than you ever thought you would have had to do when they first told you just start running. So, not telling you what you're going to do, not telling you how you're doing, not giving you any feedback in terms of whether you're doing a good job or not. In fact, I found it fascinating. Part of the test for the Army Special Forces involves not telling you that you were right or that you were wrong as you go. As you're collaborating, sometimes with other recruits, and you're having to orienteer yourself um, in darkness and figure out how to get from there to somewhere else to somewhere else, starting at 2 a.m. in the morning and needing to be done by noon later that day, there is no right or wrong. They'll say there are only consequences for the decisions that you're going to make. It's interesting, they do an IQ test, and what they've consistently found are the people who end up in Special Forces have an IQ that is between 102 at the low end and 130. I think most of us in the U.S. know that an IQ test normalizes at 100, so 100 is average intelligence. Um, Below 102, you're probably not mentally fit enough to be a Special Forces guy or gal. But if you're over 130, you're probably also not well set up to be in U.S. Special Forces. They said, too often among those people, there's too exact a need to be right. It just doesn't quite work. Final note from Special Forces selection, 70% are introverts. Maybe not what a lot of us would expect. So, a fascinating process to weed out physically and emotionally who's going to be Special Forces. And I learned a lot and saw a lot from those, those people. Okay. That's it for the military. In fact, that's probably it for the history of this podcast when it comes to talking about the U.S. military. The stories that I have, I will perhaps have an opportunity to refer to. Many I didn't even tell these last two weeks in future weeks and months of this podcast. But any kind of formal think-through of what we see and what's happening in the U.S. military today will not happen anymore, probably, on Rule Breaker Investing. You know, I asked a new friend of mine, Wesley Burks, who is the executive dean of the UNC Medical School, who was on my team for the JCOC. I said, Wesley, what was a reflection you have? He said, you know, I think many of us, when an occasion arises, say a ball game, a graduation exercise, or a similar event, rise to honor the military and clap with the others, but it's it's more in the way of just doing what we think we should be doing, Wesley wrote me, you know, to honor 
the military. The week, though, changed me, he wrote, in that I will never do that again. My applause, my standing to honor them will be truly genuine, and for me, a meaningful response. I hope that makes sense. And yes, Wesley, it does make sense to me. I hope it makes sense to anybody listening. After reviewing some of these thoughts over the last couple of weeks, and I know many of you have worked or do presently serve in the military, so you already get it. Anyway, I really enjoyed this opportunity to share what I saw with you. I said, as a fellow taxpayer, I felt an obligation to let you know, since you in part paid for my trip, what I saw and what I think. And if in future mailbags or on our Motley Fool discussion boards, anybody wants to ask me more about any of this, even out there on Twitter, I'm at David G. Fool. You're more than welcome to. All right, time to move on. Now, this was obviously a long podcast, so I'm going to go with just two quick questions to close. Two questions from our mailbag this week. And the first one comes from Linda Queen. She's at GoldenGirl2362 on Twitter. And she said, follow up question from a previous mailbag Investing in thirds or adding to winners? Is there a difference? Well, let me first of all redefine our terms here. When we talk about investing in thirds, that's this concept that when you're ready to buy a stock, rather than put all your money in that stock right away, you divide your money up into thirds. And you buy some right now with your first third, your second third a little bit later after that, and your third and final third after that. And the reason that we at The Motley Fool have championed this approach to investing is, in my experience, a lot of people have a hard time buying a stock. They might think, you know, Starbucks, it does sound like a good company. I know it's been around for a long time, but it just looks expensive, or I worry the market's going to drop in this fall. All that kind of thinking. And for us, as coaches, for this kind of mentality, we think it's a great thing to just take your money and just put a portion of it in right now. Invest that third. And then maybe a month from now, you could be clockwork about it. You could say exactly a month from now, or at some future date. You invest that second third and your third third, and now you've made your full investment, and you didn't subject yourself to worry and stress around a single date when you went in all or nothing with that stock, fully buying or fully selling. So, investing in thirds, that's, I want to make sure I define my term, that's what Lynn is asking about. And she said, that or adding to winners, is there a difference? And yes, Linda, there is a key difference. Uh, Investing in thirds is a tactic, and Adding to winners is a philosophy, a philosophy, if you will. Both are good things. Investing in thirds, I've already covered. I think it's a mental crutch for a lot of people, especially newer investors who have a hard time committing to to a stock. But studies will show, as we talked about last mailbag, studies will show that it's an inefficient way to invest. Since the market tends to go up over time, you actually net-net lose money by waiting with that second and that third third. However, uh, from a psychological standpoint, for many people, it's a difference between investing at all or not at all. And so that's why we've always favored it. It's a tactic, though. It's not something you or I have to employ. Now, adding to winners, by contrast, I think is a philosophical way of thinking. And what does unite both of these concepts, even though I'm drawing a distinction between them, tactic versus a philosophy, what unites both of these concepts is they are both capital F foolish. That is to say, both of them, in my experience, go against the conventional wisdom. Most people think you have to go all in or all out, buy all or sell all. But the truth is, you can be incremental. That's very foolish. And also very foolish for me is this idea that you would add not to the things that have dropped in value, not trying to 
as we sometimes say, buy low and sell high. But no, instead, you're consistently adding money to things that are working, to stocks that are performing well, to companies that are doing well. To me, that's the real winning approach over time. And again, it goes it goes against most people, most casual investors, as they think about how to invest and what works out there in the markets. Linda, thank you for your question. And the last one this week comes from Andrew. He's at Captain underscore Killjoy. That's a pretty good Twitter handle. Andrew, you asked, how do you interpret stock valuation with things like negative P.E. or negative book value? Great question. In other words, when a company doesn't actually have earnings or positive book value, I'm not going to define book value here, basically, when you're just not seeing things that give you normally positive ratios, how do we actually invest or think about those things? So, for me, my best fallback for the many early and disruptive emergent companies that sometimes don't have earnings yet is to look at the top line, and that is sales. So, if you look at sales, let's just pretend a company has $100 million in sales and is worth $2 billion today on the market. That is a very expensive ratio. That's about a 20 to 1 price to sales ratio. So, the price to sales ratio is a good thing that can ground you and help you understand how any company might compare by this metric with any other company. Because even though many companies may not have earnings, they pretty much all, well, not really all, but almost all of them have sales today. And so you can compare valuations using that metric. Now, typically, what I'm looking for are companies that are between three and ten times sales. Uh, you can find companies who trade below the value of their own sales. So these are very distressed situations where companies may have a billion dollars in sales but be worth only 500 million. That's a really interesting situation. They're very distressed. I'm not that interested in those. You can also find companies that are trading at well more than 10 times sales. A company like Twilio today is trading at a very high price to sales multiple. I like to find that 3 to 10 sweet spot. And in general, companies that trade at higher multiples of sales are more attractive companies in the market's eyes, right? We're willing to pay seven or eight times sales. So these are usually finding the premium price things like premium price jewelry at Tiffany or premium price coffee at Starbucks. You're finding usually quality companies. So that's kind of my sweet spot. Helps you in situations where there is no price to earnings ratio. All right. Well, that was quite a motley podcast. My apologies a little bit for the length of this one and for losing my normal focus for these two weeks of money and investing. Next week, we're going to get right back at it. I'm going to have five new stock picks, and I'm going to be reviewing my first five stock picks ever made on this podcast. It was one year ago, this upcoming week. It was five stocks for the next five years. You can go back and listen to it, if you will. I will be updating where those stocks are one year in, because I love to keep score. It helps me up my game. So, a review of five stocks next week from last year, and five new ideas for the year ahead. In the meantime, full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.